Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back in to episode number 10 of the Sitch with Grant Mitchell. That's right. We have finally hit double digits. I know it took a couple of months. Thank you for bearing with me through the process. But we had to go through some steps. We had to get the show first launched and set up and everything. We had to start innovating and promoting on social media. We got the intro made. I I moved locations. Again, if you missed the last couple of shows, just moved into a new apartment a couple of weeks ago. That's all something new. A bunch of moving parts, a bunch of change. But I think the shows are getting better and better every week and from the bottom of my heart i sincerely appreciate all of you guys that are watching the video leaving comments leaving likes leaving dislikes hey it's okay to voice your opinion i really respect it i respect everybody's opinion just like i respect you listening to mine again even if you don't agree so long story short thank you for everybody thank you for everything that has happened so far and i look forward to continuing to grow with you guys as we move forward here it's been a pretty interesting week for me to be honest been a very crazy time in the sports calendar. Obviously, we just had the Final Four. We had one of the two championship games, which obviously you know we're going to talk about. And as I'm recording this, we are about three and a half hours away from tip-off in the men's national championship. Most of you are probably hearing this after that game happens. So I'm going to try to keep my preview and, and analysis of that game pretty brief. And then we're going to see how my takes age. And who knows, if they go well over well, then I'll probably clip them and put it out on social media because, you know, just got to brag a little bit here and there where you can. People love to come for me whenever I'm wrong. You know, I'm not going to claim to be some 100% shooter from the free throw line. But in the world of sports betting, you hit about 52.4% of your bets, you break even. In the takes world, I'd say it's a relatively similar standard. You got to be held to a higher standard, but get your right six, seven, eight times out of 10. I think that's pretty good. And I think that's what we're shooting from the field so far. So can't complain about that. But let's go ahead and let's dive right on into it. We're going to start with a recap of the final four. And we're going to be going bo through both women's and men's here. So if you want to tune in for only one or, or the other, or if you want to tune into both, fine by me. If you want to tune in for one, go ahead and skip ahead. We are going to start off on the women's side of things. And this was the final four. Again, we already had the championship for the women. So we're going to keep this one a little bit briefer than we are the men's because the men's is where a lot of the drama happened in my eyes. Not that the women's games weren't good either, but we're going to go ahead. Well, you'll see as we go. So let's start off with the women's final four. LSU beats Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech was one of the two one seeds remaining in the tournament. LSU was a three seed, but despite that, the Tigers were favored. This was a very interesting game. You could tell that there was a dichotomy between the two teams pretty much from the jump. Virginia Tech struggled a little bit at first, but then they came roaring to life. What did I say in my preview of this game before? Go back and check the tape. I said if Virginia Tech makes their outside shots, there's simply nothing that LSU can do. They don't shoot the three ball well enough. They defend the three well. That, that's a strong suit for them. But again, if Tech makes the shots, what is LSU going to do to keep up? Their rebounding dominance, the, the advantage they have in every game, that's not going to matter. And they don't, you know, three points is worth more than two. They can score on the inside all they want. For every three shots that LSU makes inside, if Tech makes two, those have canceled out. So simple math. You know what I'm saying? Tokies went on a 20-2 run in the second quarter, completely took over the game. I'm not going to say it was over, but they were in the driver's seat 100%. And then we get to the fourth quarter, and that's where it fell apart for the Hokies. My Hokies, I'm, I'm an alum from that school. Beautiful school down in Blacksburg, Virginia. Love that place. But unfortunately, the Hokies, they just 
they, they capitulated, to put it short and simple. LSU went on a 16-3 run to start the fourth quarter, took the lead, never gave it back. It, it, it was a heartbreaker for the Hokies because you could see that the physical elements of LSU were just taking their toll on them. Elizabeth Kitley, who's the big man, second-team All-American or big woman. I don't, I've never said that term before. Is it big man? Are you supposed to say big woman when you're talking about women's games? I'm not quite sure. We'll just go with the big. How about that? We'll leave it universal. Elizabeth Kitley, the big for Virginia Tech. She was making an impact in the box score, but at times of the games, she was taken out of her rhythm. A lot of that was because LSU did a great job trapping and doubling her in the post. She was also taking a little bit too long to get into some of her actions that allowed the guards to come in and help. And whenever she brought the ball down, obviously they were going to swipe at it. And even when she held it up high, they crowded the space around her, so she had not much room to go. Um, Georgia Amor also had one of the worst shooting games of her career. It was a very unfortunate time to do that. She shot four of 15 from three. This is a person that had made more shots than any player in tournament history uh, until Caitlin Clark broke that in the next game. But that is what it is. The Hokies only shot nine of 31 from three, which is 29%. Looked a lot better in that second, third quarter when they were hitting their shots. But by the end of the fourth quarter, that was an ugly box score. LSU just overwhelmed them. They were too... They were too powerful. They were too dominant on the inside. The Hokies also only play six players, and one of them, Deja Gregg, not her best outing, unfortunately. Taylor Soul was in foul trouble. That She's the energizer of the team, arguably their best defender. She was supposed to spend a lot of time on LSU's bigs and just couldn't stay on the court, unfortunately. So there was really no path to victory for Virginia Tech. They got came all the way back on. And LSU moved on to the championship game. In the other Final Four game, Iowa knocked off number one undefeated South Carolina. Now, I don't want to call this win unprecedented, but it's about as close as you can get. South Carolina was 36-0 and this season. They were on a 42-game win streak. They had not lost in a year and three weeks. They were the defending national champions. Aaliyah Boston, if you don't know her, she's, she's the focal point of that South Carolina team. Amazing on offense and somehow even better on defense. Just outstanding defensive player. Probably going to go number one in the WNBA draft. She was rendered pretty ineffective. She got in foul trouble early, and then even when she came back, they, they, she couldn't do a whole lot. The South Carolina, this was an amazing game to watch because it was it was just a beautiful cacophony of styles. It was such a mismatch stylistically. Iowa came out and opened in a triangle in two. It's crazy to see a box in one in basketball these days. A box in one is basically a two-two zone, and the, the and one part of the box in one that just means you have one player sticking to the best player most of the times, or in this case, it was the tallest player. Iowa was running a triangle in two. So they were running a one-two zone, and then they just had two players stuck on the South Carolina's bigs the entire game. For some of the game, it was Aaliyah Boston. For a lot of the game, it was, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the game it was Camilla Cardozo because she's six foot seven. Iowa just had no size to match up with her. And they were daring the South Carolina wings and especially their guards to shoot threes because that's the one weakness of South Carolina's team. They were seventh in the nation in scoring, but they don't want to shoot the three ball at all. They want to rebound. They want to use the offensive rebounds, get second chance opportunities. They want to get the ball inside. They want to use their physicality to create driving lanes. And that's what had worked for them for over a year. But that's not what happened in this game, unfortunately. Iowa was just – they were too effective on their offense, and they scored in bursts too often. A lot of that goes to Caitlin Clark, who was unreal in this game. 41 points 
eight assists, six rebounds. That was the most points scored in the history of the Final Four, just out of this world. And that was coming off of a game in which, in the Elite Eight, Iowa versus Louisville, which drew more viewers on ESPN than any NBA game this season. Truly remarkable to see how far women's sports has come in that respect, and especially in such a short time. Because even though there's been the fight for equality for a while, I feel like over the last few years, the women's sports in particular has picked up a lot of momentum. Obviously, the women's national team, I don't fully know if this is true, but I do believe that they're getting equal pay to the men's soccer team. And did I say women's national team? I meant the women's national soccer team, if that wasn't clear. Um, and you've just seen stuff like this. Again, more eyes than any NBA game on ESPN this, this so far this year. It's pretty remarkable. And it's fun for me to see because I've been watching these tournament games. I've been locked in. I've known how good Caitlin Clark is. Not like that's some you know great mystery. Not I'm saying like I'm this next level talent scout. But I've seen Caitlin Clark. I've known the show that she puts on. I've known she's box office. And it's great that a lot of other people get to see it now for themselves. Zaya Cook was excellent for South Carolina. For most of the first half, she was neck and neck with Clark in scoring. She ended the game with 24 points. Again, what more can you ask for? But when Caitlin Clark's dropping 41, 8, and 6, not a whole lot she can do. So Iowa won that game. They moved on to the national championship. We're going to put a pause on that. And we're going to talk about the men's final four now. Now, again, I'm recording this before the men's national championship, so I might spend a little more time here. So if you're listening to this after the fact and you just want to skip to the championship game, bear with me. San Diego State uses a Lamont Butler buzzer beater to get past number nine Florida Atlantic 72 to 71. This was this was an amazing game, and it was amazing because Florida Atlantic ended up losing in the way that they had won games in the past. Other teams throughout this tournament had tried to bury Florida Atlantic, and they had an answer every time. And in this game, they finally pulled ahead. It looked like they were going to win, and there was no second-guessing it. They were up by 14 points with just under 14 minutes left in the game. We hadn't seen a gap like that from them in this entire tournament. They were always clinging on by a thread. They were doing everything they could to scratch and claw back, and it had been working. But it certainly wasn't the, the safest method of victory, the safest approach. And it, it came back to bite them, surprisingly enough. I, and I'm not going to say that they should have stuck to their, their MO of you know playing teams within three points the entire game. That's ridiculous. But it's a credit to San Diego State because as well-balanced of a team as this is, we look at them and they say we say their offense is their weak point, right? Not in this game. The Aztecs. I said this going back to the Creighton game, actually. I said that they had made their mid-range shots right at the end of the game. They only scored 57 points in that Creighton game, but they made their mid-range and low-post shots near the end of the game, and those clutch buckets are what helped them drive them to victory. It was the same thing in this game. They were making their shots at the end of the game when they needed to. They ended the game shooting 50% from three, nine of 18. Both teams in this game shot over 40% from three. I want to say that FAU was just a hair under 41%. Like I just said, San Diego State at 50%. That's not what we were expecting from them. We thought San Diego State was going to have to hold FAU to 65 points at the most if they wanted to win this game. We, need, we were looking for defensive stops. And yes, they keyed in on defense in the big moments, but again, it was the offense that drove them. And just like I said, it was a great sign that they had been able to do that against Creighton. It's a phenomenal sign that they took that to the next level against Florida Atlantic in the Final Four for a chance to go to the national championship. It was really cool for me, by the way, to watch that last shot because one of my big upgrades in my new apartment, I got myself a nice big TV. And there's something about this TV, it's just, uh, it's something about the picture quality that when a player shoots the ball, I swear I can predict if the shot's going in or not. And as soon as Butler rose up, I knew he drilled it. 
And this is a question that I asked, I asked my friends because I was watching it with some company as well. I said, can you think of a time when a player pulled up for a buzzer beater and March Madness, as long as it was within reason, not, not a half court shot or anything like that with the game on the line and, and they, they didn't make it. I can think of, was it Mississippi state in the first four, but that was one of the worst offensive teams in the nation. And it was the first four, so We can discount that a little bit. I, I feel like these, these types of shots just always go in in March madness. It's called March madness for a reason, right? But it's just amazing how that moniker holds up every time. One problem that I did have with this game, huge, huge problem, actually. And I want, I don't know if I should be directing this at the Florida Atlantic coach or not, because ultimately it was their decision. But I don't know if it's fair to criticize them for game on the line in the final four when Florida Atlantic had literally never won a game in March Madness until earlier this year. But you, you inbound the ball with about 15 seconds left. I don't remember exactly how much time was on the shot clock, but it was roughly five seconds left in that. So theoretically, you hold it to the very last second. You're leaving San Diego State with five or four seconds on the clock, okay? That's the situation. They try to inbound the ball. They can't get it in. They call a timeout. They come back out. You get the ball to Elijah Martin. I have been a big supporter of Elijah Martin throughout this tournament. I've been saying this is an NBA player in the making. He can get drafted. He's, he's not going to start. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's going to the NBA and he's winning rookie of the year. But I'm saying this is an NBA player with an NBA body, an NBA skill set. They're ready to go right now. Give them a few years. They'll develop. They'll become a contributor in the NBA. He had a cooking in this game. 26 points, 7 of 13 from the field. You get the ball to him off the inbound. Now I'm thinking – that's the player we want. That is exactly where we needed the ball to go. And he just instantly turns and hands it off to John L. Davis. And Davis has had his moments in this tournament. Earlier in the tournament, he became the first player to ever put up 25, 10, 5, and 5 in the same game. That's, that's an unreal achievement. And he was Florida Atlantic's leading scorer in the regular season. So I can understand the mindset, the, the very, very objective mindset of why you want to get him the ball. But in situations like this, I think you have to look at the context because John L. Davis, again, as good as he had been, he only had eight points at that point in the game. And he was only two of eight from the field. And he finished with eight points, I should say, but he ended up finishing two of nine because when Elijah Martin gave him the ball, he turns, wheels, drives to the hoop. And he badly misses a layup. I can't remember if it even hit rim or not, but I know that it, it was very far off the mark. And then as we know, San Diego State grabs the rebound. They come down the court. They don't call a timeout. It's pretty risky. Butler looks like he's trapped himself in the corner. He says he looked over and saw the shot clock. I think when he said that, he looked at the opposite side of the court because I didn't really see him turn and look at the near side basket. But to his credit, turn around, size up, quick hesitation, pull-up jumper, Buzzer beater, onions. San Diego State wins the game, moves on to their first national championship in school history. Very fun game to watch. I was a Florida Atlantic better, so that one hurt a little bit. But if in case I haven't revealed this yet, I placed the futures on UConn at plus 900, which is pretty good because rolling into the next game, UConn destroys, dismantles, throttles Miami. Here, here's the state that we're at with UConn. They beat Miami by 13 points. It was never in doubt. They led by over 20 points at, at certain points in the game. And that was their closest game of the tournament. Their margins of victory. Are you ready for this? 13, 15, 23, 24, and 28 points. They are dominating everybody that they see. It's not close. You cannot touch these guys. They're winning games by an average of over 20 and a half points. 
the, the fact that they're a seven and a half point favorite in the national championship game, I understand why that's the line. I, I do. Again, Vegas's goal is to split public opinion 50-50. I haven't consulted the research, but I would say that's probably a good, a good line to put it at. But you could make the line 10 and a half. And I would still be questioning, do I really think San Diego State covers 10 and a half? Because they, they're, Connecticut is just so good. And they're a phenomenal offense. The way they execute their sets, their personnel also is just perfect for the system they have in place. And now I'm not at all, not at all am I saying that their defense has been bad or, or shoddy, but it was their defense that guided them to victory in this game. And that's really a testament to them because Miami, even though they are deficient in other areas, the one thing that I had said about them previously that pretty much everybody agreed with is they make more tough shots than anybody in the March Madness field. They've got NBA caliber shot making. Not all their players are going to go to the NBA. Not all their players are going to be, you know, are going to be good players or they are going to play beyond college, but they can make NBA level of difficulty of shots. And Connecticut said it's not happening. They held them to 32% from the field. UConn, for comparison, shot 49% from the field. So in that respect, it wasn't even close. I knew this game was over within three minutes and a couple of seconds. You want to know why? Because UConn got some basket. It was a two-pointer. I forget who scored. Adama Sonogo walks down, top of the key, three-pointer. Right there, it's like, okay, okay. This guy made, what, 17 threes this season? He had less than 50 attempts. That's how we're starting the game. Next possession, Adama Sonogo, top of the key, three-pointer. Just butter, swish, pure. That was a make. Like, in no world was that a lucky off the backboard roll around the rim. Both of those were drilled. He ended up finishing that game with 21 and 10. He was just such a commanding and dominant interior presence. They had to show so much respect to him. And by they, I mean Miami. They were doubling it at times. They had the shaded defender off of their primary cover, just give help in the post. Uh, I saw a lot of times that they switched other defenders. A lot of the times it was Jordan Miller onto Sonogo. Jordan Miller had been singing his praises throughout this tournament too, but he's too light in the tail to go toe-to-toe with Sonogo. It, 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 just, it wasn't. It just wasn't a good day for Miami, and it wasn't their fault. I think this is what was supposed to happen. I, I bet UConn minus five and a half. Obviously, we know that came true. I told you they won by 13 points. Miami also at some point late in the second half, I don't know if it finished this way, but they missed 12 layups. And obviously, I mean up to that point in the game. And they also just they just missed a lot of shots. I hate to boil it down and make it that simple, but that's, that's what it was. Miami going to this game, we knew they were just going to have to make tough shots. That, that's what it was. They weren't going to be able to outthink. They weren't going to be able to out-execute. They weren't going to strap down and, and clamp up UConn. They were just going to have to make hard shots, and they didn't do it. So they, they really had no path to victory. And that game ended with UConn 72-59, moving on to face San Diego State in the national championship, which means it is time for us to move in to our national championship review for the ladies and then preview for the fellas. So let's start with the women's national championship. LSU beat Iowa 102 to 85 to secure a national title. I believe it was the first in the history of their school. And I want to start off with praise because some that was just some of the individual performances were simply outstanding. Jasmine Sullivan had not scored in three games in the tournament. And she ends up with 22 points. She went five of five from three in the first half. She wanted that moment. That is what sports are about. That's about who is going to step up when we need them to, when the money is on the table, when the chips are in the center of the table, who's going to rise from the ashes 
and write their name into permanent lore. Jasmine Sullivan said, I am. And now she ended up making the all tournament team. I don't think it was justified. I think Georgia Amor should have been there. I think I don't think you can put somebody who scored zero points in three games on the all tournament team, but hey, whatever. She was the most outstanding player. She was the best player on the court in this game. Alexis Morris, fifth year senior, brought in to win games like this, use her experience, her veteran leadership. Only had two points in the first half. And as good as LSU was playing, that was a concern. Wasn't a concern in the second half when she scored 19 points. She drove them to victory. It was like watching a mid-range maestro in the NBA and those dire playoff moments. I'm thinking of a Kevin Durant. I'm thinking of a Chris Paul. I'm thinking of a Kyrie Irving, of a Jason Tatum. When they're cooking and they got the ball and they take two, three steps inside inside the perimeter, inside the arc, and they go to a crossover or hesitation or or they put their back to the basket. Whatever the case is, you go, you know there's a move coming and the ball is going in the bucket. That's what Alexis Morris was. Every time she got the ball and she had a downhill, I said, this is this is two points. And she she was the reason that they won in that second half. Because Iowa, as badly as they were being beaten, they were not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. They lost by 17, and that looks lopsided. But we're also going to get into why that was. You know what? We're going to get into it right now. The referees in the Iowa LSU championship game were flat out the worst that I've seen in any sporting event that I've ever watched. They were just atrocious on every level. And I was a neutral in this game. I also, a matter of fact, I bet LSU plus three and a half. So you can say I'm on LSU side. So what reason do I have complained about the refs? Competitive integrity. They were absolutely awful. They need if they were paid for this game. I know they were paid for this game. They need to refund the invoice, whatever, however they were paid. They need to give it back to the payee because they were just. It looked like they weren't trying to call the game. It, it did not. It looked like they weren't trained. It looked like they didn't know what the sport of basketball was. It looked like they weren't watching. It looked like they were sleeping on the court. I mean, I just could not believe what I was seeing travels that weren't called they called travels on on normal dribbles they called a couple of offensive fouls i remember a screen by sonano and i remember caitlin clark with the push off i was thinking how are you calling these the technical foul on caitlin clark you can't call that in the national championship game when it's her going to be her fourth personal foul. And you have now Iowa's three best players, all the four fouls. And then on the other side, LSU, they were, they were getting so many calls that benefited them for no reason, but they also had so many shots under the hoop. A lot of them were putbacks where they were getting fouled and they were and ones and the rest didn't call it. It was like the refs were calling the game based on the results of the play. It was like if LSU missed a shot, they got the foul call. But if they made it, even if there was a blatant foul, the refs weren't going to call it. I I just could not understand what I was seeing. And I've said this on social media a couple of times over the past 24 hours. The refs were equally bad for both sides. I'm not saying the referee decisions favored one team or the other. It was just god-awful on both sides. But... I feel personally, and you can comment if you disagree, I think that bad refereeing negatively affects the trailing team more because there are a lot of momentum killers. There are a lot of situations like Iowa's best players getting in foul trouble. That means in the fourth quarter, 
they literally had to give free lanes to the hoop whenever LSU was driving at them because they couldn't even try to defend them because the refs were going to call a foul. I remember Caitlin Clark, or it was either Clark or Sonano, actually. They had their defender at the elbow. The, 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 ball, the ball handler turned around and faced them up, gave them a quick size-up dribble, and then went, and they stood with their hands up and just turned to the side. They didn't shuffle. They didn't stick a hand out. They knew anything because they knew how bad the refs were. Another instance, which was just infuriating to see, there's a referee trying to – I think she's she's standing there, or he, whoever it was, they were, they were in position just sort of waiting around to make a call. And I don't know if they didn't like where Kim Mulkey, the LSU coach, was standing or if she wanted them to move because they were blocking her line of sight. But they end up getting into a sort of a, a confrontation with one another, and the ref sort of puts an arm out to push Kim Mulkey back. And Kim Mulkey starts clawing and slapping her. It, she, that's an automatic ejection. She should be gone from the game. And they didn't even give her a warning, much less a technical foul, which would have been free throws for Iowa. I just could not believe what my eyes were seeing. Whatever that referee crew was, I'm I'm a huge proponent of referees have bad nights too. That you know, players have bad nights, broadcasters have bad nights, analysts have bad nights, journalists have, you know, plumbers and electricians have bad nights. Everybody has an off day. It's cool. It's cool. But an entire crew, not only to have an off day, but to have the worst day that I have ever seen from a refereeing crew in any sport that I've ever watched, that's unacceptable. Now, fines, I don't know if you can take it that far, but suspensions from games, you know, if you're caught doing 80 and a 55 when you're driving, you get sent back to driving school. Should these referees have to be put through referee school again? I absolutely think so. Because they just showed a new level of incompetence, one that I didn't realize was possible. I also had a problem with Angel Reese and Alexis Morris. I think it was both of them. Maybe it was just one of them. Forgive me if I'm wrong there. But they said that the way that Iowa defended South Carolina with the triangle and two, packing the paint, leaving the three-point shooters open, they said it was disrespectful, and they wanted to take it out on them. What are we talking about, man? It's disrespectful to analyze your opponent and come up with a defensive structure, a game plan that fits you the best. It's disrespectful to do your homework and come up with a competitive event. What are we talking about? LSU knew that Iowa was small. So what did they do? They pounded the glass. They drove it inside. Is that is that disrespectful to Iowa? That Like pick on somebody your own size, huh? Is that where we're going? Should LSU have not been allowed to, to, to grab offensive rebounds? Should second chance points have been outlawed because it was unfair and it was disrespectful? Angel Reese is 6'3". Kaylin Clark's six foot, weighs significantly less than her. Those are the team's two best players. That's an unfair matchup. That's disrespectful. We can't have that game played. I'm sorry. No, those are the rules. I, just, I could not believe what I was hearing. Now, this is a sophomore in college. I was doing much stupider stuff than Angel Reese when I was in college. So I am not judging her or her character or anything like that. I think people in the media have taken it too far when they start to make statements about it. I saw one person not familiar with their work or who they're attached to, but they had 999.5 thousand followers on Twitter. So they had a, fo a following. And they said Angelis was an effing idiot or an effing moron, something along those lines. And I saw Richard Jefferson jump to her face, or her face, her defense, and say that this is a sophomore in college, a very young lady. If this was my daughter, 
you know, we, we'd be having a conversation, something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing, but, and I feel the same way as Richard Jefferson. I think it was a, I think it was a dumb, ill-advised statement to say that it was disrespectful, but with the understanding that I have of the situation she's in, also just her age, again, how old is Ames Reese? 19 years old, 20 years old. She's a sophomore. She's got to be one of those. Don't take it a step too far. A lot of people in the hot take era, social media area era, they want to get their name out there. They want to attach themselves to one of the polls, you know, and when I say polls, uh, if, you, if you're listening audibly, then you're not seeing me holding my hands out to the side of the camera, the extremes. That's what I'm saying. People want to attach themselves to one of those extremes. It's okay not to do that. We can have a rational and logical conversation. We can disagree with one another. We can disagree with Angel Reese. We can disagree with Caitlin Clark. We can disagree with Kim Mulkey, whatever the case may be. I think that's a good place to leave that. Men's national championship game preview. Again, not going to spend too much time on this because it's happening a couple of hours after I finish recording. UConn versus San Diego State. UConn is favored by seven and a half. I expect them to roll. I think they're going to win by somewhere around 10 points. San Diego State is going to give them some pushback in spots. I think that UConn will go up early. San Diego State will try them out. Let's say two comebacks where they keep it respectable. UConn is going to respond. And that's going to be the game. Adama Sonogo, he's going to be in for a big day. I know that San Diego State is physical on the defensive interior. I know that they have very capable guards who can hound the three-point line. They have the third-best three-point defense in America. I know I was speaking glowingly of how they've upped their shooting game in recent outings. I don't think any of that's going to matter. UConn is top to bottom, the better team. They're number one in composite ranking in Ken Palm. They're number three in ESPN's basketball power index. They rank very highly in important indicators of tournament success, free throw shooting, offensive rebound, assist to turnover ratio, all those things you look for. They have it. Personnel. They can shoot. They can defend. They can facilitate. They have size. They have length. All of that working in their favor. Naheem Aline, for former Virginia Tech Hokie transferred to UConn. Want to give him a special shout out because when he scores eight or more points, UConn is 14 and one this season. He scored exactly eight points three times in this tournament, and he went over another time. But he's averaging 7.4 points in the tournament. Uh, the the statistics speak for themselves. If he has a decent game, then UConn's practically guaranteed to win. Not necessarily looking to him to be the difference, but if he is, then you already know what's coming. UConn also has an average margin of victory. I said this earlier, over 20 and a half points. Meanwhile, San Diego State has one win of more than seven points. Now, that was by 20-something. I want to say 23 against Furman right after they upset UVA. Not really putting a whole lot of stock into that. San Diego State needs to keep this thing close, and I just don't think they're going to be able to. I think that UConn rolls. I think my futures bet cashes. I'm going to walk away a happy man, and I'll be back on the show just a little bit richer. I'll still stay humble though. Always humble for you guys out there. How are you enjoying the show so far? Leave a comment. Let me know. Now let's go ahead and move on over to the NBA. We're going to keep it in basketball on the hardwood, but this is how we're going to wrap up the show. We've got a few headlines I want to go over. The Los Angeles Lakers, as of Monday at 6.26 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Lakers are within a half game of the sixth and fifth seed. The Golden State Warriors and Los Angeles Clippers are ahead of them. They, the Lakers hold the tiebreaker over the Warriors. So in the event that they both end the regular season with the same record, the Lakers would get the advantage over them. They do not hold the tiebreaker over the Clippers. However, they play each other on Wednesday night. That's going to be the second night of a back-to-back -back for the Lakers. They have the Jazz in Utah on Tuesday. 
The Clippers are resting, so they will be fresh. This is going to be a Russell Westbrook revenge sort of game. D'Angelo Russell, I also think, is going to be motivated to perform a little more highly. Listen, the way that the Lakers have been playing, you know what? Let's save that. I'm just going to give you some numbers. Let's look at the NBA standings, shall we? So who are the best teams in the NBA off the top of your head? You got them? They should mostly be the same for everybody. There's one team with a winning percentage of 72%. Who's that? You got it? That's right. It's the Milwaukee Bucks. It should be pretty easy. Number two, this team has a winning percentage of 69%. Now you're probably thinking this is one of two teams. You probably know who those teams are. I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. It's the Boston Celtics. 69.2%. Only two games back of the Bucks. Got a three-game gap on the Sixers. They've all but secured that two-seed in the East. Pretty good for them, right? There's a team with a winning percentage of 68%. Do you know who that is? Is it the Denver Nuggets? Is it the Memphis Grizzlies? Is it the 76ers? It's the Los Angeles Lakers since the trade deadline. This team is really good, and they are being held to the stigma of their shortcomings in recent years, a lot of which were injury-induced. The Lakers were the number one seed in the West when LeBron had his ankle destroyed by Solomon Hill. They were they took the Phoenix Suns to six games, I believe would have beat them. LeBron was very unhealthy. Anthony Davis was moderately injured. They still took the Suns to six. In those playoffs. Last year, they didn't make the playoffs. We know about all the disharmony that they had on their team. First, it started with them building the oldest roster in NBA history, and then all the problems with Russell Westbrook and the like. They start this year 2-10. and 10. Again, Russell Westbrook, Patrick Beverly, a lot of the blame rests on their shoulders. Rob Polinka for not building a proper roster. Even since that 2-10 and 10 start, Lakers have the fourth best record in the Western Conference. They have the best defense in the NBA since the All-Star break. They're 6-0 when D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James play. This, this, team, this team is good, guys. This team is really good. I know we don't want to talk about it. I know it's not cool to talk about them. I know people are tired of LeBron and tired of the Lakers. This team's really good. No team out there wants to see them. And people saying the Golden State Warriors are more of a championship threat than the Lakers. My goodness, what have you been watching all season? The Warriors are 9-30 and 30 away from home. But it gets worse than that. And when they're on the road playing teams with a winning percentage of 500 or better, or 50% or better, teams that have even or winning records, the Golden State Warriors are 2-20. and 20. Two wins, 20 losses. Do you know what happens in the playoffs? Huh? You play teams that have records of 50% or better. You play winning teams. The Warriors are 2-20 and 20 on the road. Don't tell me they're waiting for Andrew Wiggins to get back. They're one game over 500 with Wiggins in the lineup. Don't tell me they missed... Oh, they fell down the standings when Steph Curry didn't play. They're one game over 500 with Curry in the lineup. They're two games over 500 without Curry in the lineup. They simply cannot get up for road games anymore. Players are declining. There's disharmony in the squad. Draymond Green punched somebody in the face. He almost broke his teammate's jaw. 
Jordan Poole is not playing like the player that he was supposed to become. He has incredible talent, but he's so inconsistent, doesn't have a great basketball IQ, and he just wanders in, in a lot of the games. Klay Thompson having a remarkably resurgent offensive season, but he's old and he's very injured. He, he just has too much. He has too many, too much bump, too many bumps on his body. Really stumbling with my words there. He has too many bumps and bruises. He was once the best, maybe the best two-way player in the NBA because he was so sensational on defense. He can't stay in front of anybody anymore. Steph Curry is still all world. We're talking about LeBron aging better than any superstar in NBA history. Steph, I don't think will ever eclipse that because of the size that LeBron is, how many beatings he's taken driving to the rim. And also just LeBron is viewed as a better all-time player than Steph Curry. But Steph Curry could easily be the second best player in the latter half of their career, the later stages. He doesn't look like he's slowing down at all. Draymond Green, on the other hand, he was unplayable in a few games in the last playoffs, including the finals, lest we forget. He looks worse this season to me. Can we trust him in the playoffs? Has Kaminga taken the leap? Is James Wiseman going to take the leap? Oh, wait, he plays for the Pistons now. Is Moses Moody going to get on the court? Is 40-year-old Andre Iguodala, who's been put on ice, is he going to make a big difference when he comes back? Is Andrew Wiggins, who a lot of people look at as the key cog, is he going to be okay after a couple of months off? By the way, prayers to Andrew Wiggins. Saw a report that he missed time because his dad was going through some medical problems. Hope it's not the case. And if it was the case, I hope everything's okay now. Not an attack on him at all in any sense. But can you trust somebody who's been away from the game? And if that's the situation, dealing with that mental stress, can you trust them to just drop in on game one of the NBA playoffs and go guard the best player on the team you're facing? History says you can't. And they just don't have other, they don't have other contributors on their roster capable of driving them in these playoff rounds. Is Dante DiVincenzo, Kavon Looney, are they going to drive you to wins in the playoffs? No, they're not. It's the reality of the situation for the Warriors. So people saying that they're going to be a great team, let's let's just let's just leave it there. I just realized that I never took the Lakers looking at the six seed banner off of the show. So that looks a little goofy. MVP tracker, we're going to round out the show right here. Jokic is getting docked in my eyes from missing games. He's still amazing, but I had him in second earlier. And the criticism on the other guys, why people loved Jokic was he's been playing so much. Well, now he's not playing. He's not playing at a crucial part of the season. I know there's not supposed to be recency bias, but I think this race was neck and neck between Giannis, or excuse me, between Jokic and Embiid, and Giannis was looming close behind. So I think that it's it's important time. And the missed games, I'm not going to say it's unacceptable, but it's going to hurt you in my eyes. Joel Embiid, I think it's still his award to lose. He would have my vote if it was today, but Giannis is – making as strong of a case as you can in the last couple weeks of the season. Just had, what was it, 34, 12, and 6. Maybe it was 38, 12, and 6. One of those two, I think, the other night led his team to an important win over the 76ers after they got demolished by the Boston Celtics. Giannis is the best player in my eyes. If he played the minutes that the other guys were playing, he would dwarf them in stats, but he only plays less than 32 minutes a night. He's the best player in the league on the best team in the league. I think that he is going to become storming for this award, and we could be looking at a three-headed monster of an awards race right at the end. Right now, my MVP ballot goes Embiid number one, Giannis number two, Jokic number three, but I still think any of those three could win the award.
That's going to do it for episode number 10 of the Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so, so much for tuning in with me. I know we talked about a lot. I'm very interested to hear your feedback and your comments. I reply to all comments. If you want to talk to me, just drop one and I will respond as soon as I possibly can. But until next time, thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great day. And I will see you all on the next episode of the Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so much.